grace and peace to you from God our Father, through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was preparing for today's message, uh, I relearned a lesson that's very important. When we're reading the Bible, when we're studying it, when we're thinking about it, considering it, um, sharing it even, we have to actually pay attention to sort of what it actually says and not what we maybe read, think we're reading in it, or what we think it might be saying. I want to show you how it was that I ended up relearning that lesson. So, again, this parable, this hard, heavy parable that we're reading from Jesus today, it's about this landowner who has built up a beautiful farm, right? a wonderfully appointed vineyard with all the different things that Jesus talks about, the wine press and the, uh, the watchtower and the, the wall and the hedge around it to keep um, pests and thieves out. And this landowner, who is off on a trip, when he sends his servants to receive what's due him at harvest time, Turns out that the tenants he's leased this farm, this, this vineyard to, are violent criminals. And he, uh, they abuse his servants, they mistreat them, they kill some, they ultimately kill the, the landowner's son. And so when the landowner returns, he executes judgment on them for their wickedness. And the details of what the, the teachers of the law that Jesus is speaking to call their wretched end, we kind of get those left to our imagination, don't we? We don't really know what happens to them. Uh, we can fill in the, the gory details as we wish. And then after they're dealt with, right, the landowner leases out this vineyard to new tenants who are going to pay him what's owed. It's a hard story, right? A, a kind of a heavy, condemning story. And so when I started initially writing and thinking about preaching on this text last week, uh, my initial thought was to sort of have us sort of sit under this to feel the weight of this text, this heavy, hard text, particularly by asking ourselves this question. Do we produce the fruit that God wants in our lives, right? Individually, as a congregation, do we produce what God wants? Or would we, sitting under this story, come to the conclusion that that we don't return to God individually, congregationally, a, a harvest commensurate to the gifts with which he's blessed us? I started thinking about that sort of focus, right? I started thinking about ways to illustrate that. I started thinking about ways to prompt our reflection. As I did so, thankfully, right, part of my process is I go and read other people's sermons. I go and read other commentaries. Uh, and as I did so, I realized something that should have been obvious to me initially. It's not the point of this parable. It's not what this parable is about, right? Jesus does not tell us this parable here as an encouragement to productively use the gifts which he's given us. That's not the point of this parable. Jesus does actually make that point in a separate parable. Maybe one that you might be familiar with, the parable that's usually called the parable of the talents, where he talks about a king who's going away on a trip, very similar to this one, and he gives differing amounts of gold to various servants, to three different servants, and tells them to invest that money in profitable ventures and return to him at the end of his trip a profit from their investments. Right? And in that parable, Jesus is telling his people, look, I have given you, each of you, as individuals, as congregations, many gifts. Use them. Use them profitably. Use them to, to serve others, to glorify me. That's the point of that parable. But that isn't the point of this particular parable. And so maybe I can be forgiven a little bit right, for initially running with that idea as I was working on this. Because as I pointed out, it's a biblical idea. 
it's a theme that comes from another parable, another teaching of Jesus, but what's my job as a preacher? It is to accurately and clearly take a, a, a text from the Bible, right, part of God's word, and lay it out for you. Apply it to you, to, to our lives together, to our lives individually. And if I had preached that sermon that I sort of started thinking about last week as I was working through this text, I just would not have been doing my job as a preacher. It's easy for us to do this, honestly, as we read the Bible. right? It's easy for us to read something in it that just isn't really there. Right? Best case scenario, best case scenario, what I was doing is what happens. right? We read a, a section of the Bible, and we read something that is actually a teaching of the Bible. It's just not this particular section's teaching, but at least, right, at least we're coming up with something that's biblical. Worst case scenario, right, we read the scriptures and we read into them something that's just not there. Something that came from somewhere else, right? We heard someone say it. We, we heard someone um, come out with it on, on, in a book that we read, in a movie that we watched, on social media somewhere, right? And we read that into the Bible. Or, maybe even worse case scenario than that, it's just something that's coming out of my own sinful heart that I'm reading into the scriptures rather than letting the scriptures speak to me. That's what's happening with the Pharisees in this reading here. Jesus, right, he tells this harsh, condemning story that's directed toward them, but do you catch how it unfolds, right? Jesus didn't conclude the story himself. Instead, verse 40, he asks them, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Ooh, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. This is weird, because the Pharisees don't generally like to play along with Jesus when they know that he's criticizing, when they know that he's trying to sort of trap them in their words, trap them with a story, right? Last week, we read the portion of their conversation that comes just before this. Now, Jesus asked them sort of a tricky question. John's baptism, was that something from heaven? Was that of human origin? And they dithered and they dallied and they said finally, ah, we don't know, right? Because they didn't want to get trapped by him openly in that conversation. The Pharisees do not generally play along. And yet right now, in this exchange, right, they set him up. To, to just chop their legs out from under them. Why? Well, because they read something into his story that wasn't there. And we can sort out why. You heard our Old Testament reading earlier, seven verses from the beginning of Isaiah chapter 5. If you would go back to that in your bulletins and you'd look it over and you'd kind of do that alongside the gospel reading, you kind of have to flip a couple pages, you'll see... Right, Jesus is very clearly drawing on this section of Isaiah 5 to build up his parable. Right, Both sections talk about this vineyard where there's a wine press being cut out, where there's a wall being built up, where there's a watchtower being built, where there's somebody looking to, to receive fruit from it at harvest time. Jesus uses this parable that Isaiah tells to build up his parable because he knows that when he does so, he's going to find an opportunity to point out that the Pharisees have read something into the Bible, the Old Testament, that wasn't there. And that because of that, they don't get his preaching. They don't get his teaching. They don't understand what he's talking about. Uh, we need to set that Old Testament reading maybe in a little bit of history to understand what their misunderstanding was. Uh, so Isaiah, 
The prophet who wrote what we read there lived 700 years before Jesus, roughly, uh, about 200 years after Isaiah, so 500 years before Jesus. There was an event called the Babylonian exile. Well, let me do, you know, my math might be off there. Check me afterwards. Isaiah lives a century, two centuries before an event called the Babylonian exile. Uh, it's what he prophesies in this reading there. Shortly, a, a century, two centuries after Isaiah's lifetime, God allows the Babylonians, these enemies of Israel, to come in, conquer Israel, and take all the Israelites, the Judites, um, people of Jerusalem and Judah, into captivity in Babylon. Right? The, God's land is left devastated, empty, just like this, this vineyard that Isaiah is writing about. And the Israelites are taken off to Babylon to live there. And they live there 70 years until God, 70 years later, raises up the, the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire comes and conquers the Babylonians. And the Persians decide, you know what, these, these Jews, uh, we'll let them go back. We'll let them go back to Israel. And the Jews come back and they settle back in Israel after these 70 years that they live in exile. The Pharisees, these particular folks with whom Jesus was arguing, they arise as a religious movement. We've heard, we're studying the Pharisees in our after worship Sunday Bible study right now. So if you've been coming to that, you know that the Pharisees came around as a movement after the Babylonian exile. And their interpretation of history was this. When they looked at something like Isaiah chapter 5, they saw that God had threatened, right? I'm going to take my people out of my land because they're not producing the fruit that I want. And when they came back to Israel, when the Pharisees arose, their interpretation of history was, okay, God took us, our ancestors in particular, out of this land because we weren't scrupulously, truly adhering to God's law. And so the Pharisees thought, how are we going to avoid something like the Babylonian exile again? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to make sure that we scrupulously, stringently adhere to the law of God. And we're going to require that in society, we're going to promote the adherence to the law of God. And in this way, their thought was, not only will we avoid God's anger again, but we will indeed merit his blessing. So now, when Jesus, standing there with them, tells them the story about a landowner, about a beautiful vineyard, about some wicked tenants, who didn't offer up to the landowner what the landowner was expecting at harvest time and about some good tenants who were going to offer up to the landowner exactly what the landowner was looking for, the Pharisees standing there think, oh, we know this story. That's Isaiah chapter 5. Of course, right, for accuracy's sake, I should note, um, they didn't have chapter 5 of Isaiah like we would have thought of it now, right? The, the numbers that you find in your Bibles, the, the chapter numbers, the verse numbers are a pretty modern thing. Um, they are not original to the Bible, that the Pharisees would have known this section of the Bible. They would maybe have called it Isaiah's vineyard section, something like that. They tend to name things rather than numbering them like we do. But nevertheless, right, they would have thought, oh, I know this story. I, I've, I've read that. And they would have thought, these good tenants, right, the ones who are going to get the vineyard after the bad guys, uh, the bad tenants are kicked out, those good ones are us. Us. We're, we're offering up to God what he wants. Right? Those wicked tenants, those were the Israelites who had lived before the exile. God, obviously, the landowner. And they, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were the better tenants 
who would pay out to God what it was that he wanted from them at harvest time. It was an easy interpretation, right? To them, it was the obvious interpretation. It was entirely incorrect. They had read something into the Bible that just wasn't there. And so Jesus replies to them, and he points out that they had read not only that untruth into the Bible, but another untruth as well. Jesus replied to them, he uses a picture that's found throughout the prophet Isaiah, throughout the Psalms, throughout the other prophets. It's the picture of a a cornerstone, uh, the, the stone that sets the corner, that sets the foundation of a building in its proper place. So the Pharisees, see, they thought that by their conduct, they would be able to place a new cornerstone for their relationship with God, both individually and as a a nation, a congregation, that they would set that cornerstone, that their adherence to God's law would give Israel a new foundation for its connection with God. But Jesus points out, you, you guys have missed what it actually says, he's telling them. He points out that the cornerstone of human relationship with God isn't laid by humans. God lays the cornerstone. The citation Jesus uses here is from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. That is God who set that cornerstone. Another reference to cornerstone we get from Isaiah chapter 28, very explicit here. The sovereign Lord says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, God says, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. And so Jesus now asks them in a biting way, right? Haven't you read this in the Bible? Haven't you read that it's God who places the cornerstone of your relationship with him? It's not the other way around. It's never the other way around. It can't be the other way around. Don't you understand how this works? He's saying to them. And honestly, they'd have to answer, no, we don't know that, right? They had read into the Bible their own sort of free will ability to establish a relationship with God on the basis of their actions. It's a teaching that's often been read into the Bible, right? The idea that we sort of follow God on the basis of a decision, that we dedicate ourselves to God, that we, that we offer ourselves up to God, that we're the ones who choose to follow him. Right? The Pharisees weren't the one, first ones to sort of read that idea into the Bible. They're certainly not going to be the last. So Jesus sums up the point of his parable right, what they ought to have understood in his last words to them. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. You're not the good tenants, he says. He's he's telling them, you are making the same mistake that your ancestors made. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Understand this, he's saying to them. You aren't the good tenants. You are still not producing the fruit which God desires, nor did your ancestors. And now, right now, the story becomes one that we can apply to ourselves by asking a simple question. What fruit does God want my life to produce? It is a simple question, but we have to kind of tread carefully with it. Because... As we've been noting all throughout this, we can real easily read into the Bible our own ideas, in particular, right, of what the fruit God wants from our lives should be. It's very natural for us. In fact, it's it's just about the most natural thing for humans. We, we make up a God in our heads who, 
coincidentally, tends to look a lot like us. Right? The God that we make up tends to approve of the things we approve of. He tends to disapprove of the things we disapprove of. And that God that we picture lays out for us what we think should be the fruits that God would expect of us. Now, to be clear, too, the God that we make up does not always give us fruits that are actually easy. Right? Sometimes, yes, but often throughout the history of the church, the conception of God that people have come up with asks for fruits that could be difficult. So this is October. It's the month that uh, Protestants, Lutherans in particular, tend to celebrate the Reformation. And one of the teachings, one of the central uh, reasons that the Reformation broke away from the Catholic Church 500 years ago was the teaching that what was particularly special was church work. That if you really wanted to offer up particularly pleasing fruit to God in your life, you would go become a monk a priest, a nun, right? You would enter holy orders. That that was fruit which was particularly pleasing and special to God. That that fruit did something uh, more, better, more fulfilling, richer, um, more satisfying to God than just living, you know, normal life. Nonsense. Nonsense. But that was what the church taught. The, The fruit that was truly pleasing to God was entering church work at dedicating yourself in that particular way. Still today, right, even, after, even 500 years after the Protestant Reformation, in fact, maybe more than ever since the Protestant Reformation, I, I think there are a lot of people who are also very confused about what it is that Christian fruit ought to look like. I, I, I chat with people regularly who seem to think that Christian fruit, right, the fruit of the Spirit is, uh, is going to be shown forth in some kind of like hyper-affective emotionality when you're in worship, right, that the, truly, if you're going to claim to be a fruit-filled Christian, you're going to be sort of clapping and hollering and hooting in worship like, I don't know, like the prophets of Baal capering up on the mountaintop as they cried out to God while Elijah just sat back there and laughed. Uh, there are other people, right, who seem to think that it's largely found in long-winded, spontaneous prayer, right? The kind of prayer that the Pharisees would offer out on the street corners, throwing it up to God with their many words, as Jesus derisively notes. That that was not at all interesting. And then he just hands over to, to us something simple like the Lord's Prayer instead to be the model for our prayer. Uh, or people who, ah, man, social media is the worst. If you've talked to me at all, you know that I, I just can't stand social media. People who seem to think that right Christian fruit is sort of rooted in my ability to be a, a caustic, abrasive, argumentative uh, d- debater with everybody on the internet, that that's sort of my Christian fruit in contrast to Christ's words given through the Apostle Paul, who tells us that we ought not be provoking one another, uh, that we ought not be conceited. Man, uh, there's just something pretty inherently conceited about thinking that your typing is going to change somebody's mind. I don't know. People often seem pretty productive when they're doing that kind of thing, right? They sure produce a lot of that fruit. They sure do. And isn't that, right, isn't that the good, something that would mark a good tenant, right? Isn't that something that would mark a good tenant to be productive? But honestly, what we have to note again is production isn't the point of the parable here that Jesus tells. He does not care whether or not these tenants are productive. In fact, the the wicked tenants probably were pretty productive and they wanted to keep everything for themselves. This parable doesn't have to do with productivity so much as it has to do with handing over to God the fruits he expects to receive from us. So, 
There we go again, right? What's, there's that question. What fruits does God want my life to produce? It's self-centered fruits is what God ultimately condemns in this parable, right? It's, it's the idea of fruit that sort of benefits only me, of action that benefits only me, that's self-focused. That fruit God entirely rejects. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul gives us a real clear definition of what Christian fruit is, and it's this definition that Paul offers that we have to read into every, every instance of fruit being mentioned in scriptures, right? Of, of what it is to live the Christian life. We read this into it. We let the scriptures tell us what the scriptures are saying. We don't read our own ideas into them, but we take the scriptures as a whole and we read through them and we come to an understanding that way. And this is what Paul says Christian fruit really is. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul wrote that to the Galatians because they were wrestling with the idea of fruit in a way that, again, the church has wrestled with in the past and continues to wrestle with. I see this cropping up even more these days. Uh, they wondered if fruit, right, if what, what God wanted from them was sort of determined by adherence to the Mosaic law, right? Circumcision was sort of the presenting issue for the Galatian congregation. Should, God, should we submit to circumcision or not? Is that what God wants from us? But then also, ritual washings, uh, dietary separatism, the various festivals of the Old Testament, right? Is that the fruit that God wants from us? Does that make us better Christians? Paul tells, tells him simply no. But that's not the fruit that God wants. And he says, anyone who preaches to you otherwise is mocking God. And then Paul goes on, do not be deceived God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, whoever sows to, to reap self-centered fruit, self-aggrandizing fruit, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. What pleases the Spirit? How do we sow to please the Spirit? Well, it's this. Trusting in Jesus, the cornerstone, right? The one cornerstone as the only thing that can, does, will establish you in relationship with God. And then in that faith, right? In the idea that there's nothing that you're bringing to God, that, that you stand rightly before him because of your cornerstone, Christ Jesus, rather than looking for something to offer up to him, Paul says this, let's do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's the fruit that God's Spirit works in your life. Amen.